trade with these other cultures. They're excited to see the Jews come back. And they were like, this is awesome. The people are coming back. Look, they're building the temple that we, we worshiped at. Let's, let's help them. And so they were coming to contribute money to it. And the Jews who came back said, no, thank you. We don't want your dirty money because y'all are just a bunch of half-breeds. And that began the tension. You can feel that right there. And so what happened was the Samaritans, in retaliation to that, they went and built their own temple. And so what the Jews was, did was they went and destroyed their temple and burned it to the ground. So that fueled even more animosity. So that's what created this racial division between them. And so the Jews in that day and time would never travel through Samaria, not only because they thought of them as unclean, but also because they would fear for their life. Because if you traveled through Samaria, there was a chance you would um, uh, be taken hostage. There's a chance that you would be robbed and you would definitely be mistreated because you were a Jew coming through this hostile area. So you can understand the disciples with Jesus when Jesus is over in Judea and the safest route is to go right up the Jordan River to Galilee. And he goes, we got to go to Galilee and I've got to go through Samaria. And they're like, no, Jesus, we don't have to go through Samaria. We, we can go right. No, I have to go to Samaria. And so there's this urgency that Jesus is speaking. You imagine the, the, the anxiety that the disciples are feeling at this point. They're like, why in the world are we going through Samaria? I mean, what is Jesus thinking here? And he's going out of his way from where they were with John the Baptist and his disciples and that whole interaction that happens there at the end of chapter 3. Um, all of that, that, they would actually be safer and shorter to go the other route. So Jesus goes out of his way, takes the disciples with him, starts traveling through Samaria, gets to this city called Sychar, and then all of a sudden Jesus goes, Oh my goodness, I am so tired. I, are you guys not tired? I am so, I cannot walk another step. I am thirsty. I, I got to sit down and rest a while. I think I'm going to sit here at this well. And you can imagine the disciples going, Jesus, we are in the middle of Samaria. We cannot stop. We have to keep going. And he's like, I'm just, I'm tired. I don't have any energy. I, I've just got to stop and rest a while. And they're like, let's go get him some lunch or something. We got to get him some food and get him out of here because we cannot stay here in Samaria. And so that's how the whole thing starts. And so while they're gone to get food, um, Jesus is sitting there and a woman comes up in the middle of the day. Now this woman is a Samaritan woman, obviously, because they are in Samaria. She probably doesn't have intera any interaction with Jesus at all. And Jesus initiates the conversation with her. He says, give me a drink. She's taken back by this, and she's like, why are you, a Jewish man, asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water? Because Jews would never drink. They wouldn't even have anything to do with Samaritans. They wouldn't even drink out of their utensils. Anything made in Samaria, they would not touch it because it was all considered unclean. So she's taken back that this Jewish man is here in Samaria, number one. Number two, that he's willing to take a drink from her vessels. And, and he says to her, if you knew who it was who asked you for a drink, you would ask him for a drink. And he would give you a drink of living water, and you would never thirst again. <laughs> All right, well, give me some of this living water, because if I have that living water, then I won't have to make this journey out here to this well every day in the heat of the day. And Jesus says, why don't you go get your husband, and we'll continue this conversation. And there's that kind of awkward moment. She doesn't say anything. She's like, well, I actually don't have a husband. And Jesus goes, you're right when you say you don't have a husband. You've actually had five husbands. And the man that you're with now is not your husband. Awkward silence. In your, main, uh, in your mind, you process, am I going to divert this? Am I going to play this off? Or am I just going to admit that I just got pointed out? And so she goes, I perceive you are a prophet. 
<laughs> and so she does what anybody else would do when they get found out. You change the subject, right? Weather, something else. And so she changes it to religion. She goes, well, our fathers say we worship on this mountain, and your fathers say we worship on that mountain. And Jesus says to her, you know what? There's a day coming when no one will worship on either mountain, but true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In other words, that somehow God, who they think dwells over here, and God, who they think dwells over here, will not dwell in either place, but will literally dwell in the person. And so true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So Jesus was giving her deep theology there that somehow the spirit was going to be imparted to individuals and individuals, no matter where they are, have the presence of God with them and they can worship anytime they want. And then she, in response to that, still somewhat cynical, says, well, I guess when the Messiah shows up, he can tell us who's right and who's wrong. And that's where Jesus says to her, the one who speaks to you is he. And at this moment, she's taken back. Now, we don't know exactly what happened. We don't know the, the, the body language. We don't know exactly the cynicism, the degree of cynicism that she has there. But all we know is that John tells us that at that moment, she leaves her water pot and she goes back to the village. Something so struck her. Something so enamored her in that relationship in his revelation now remember this jesus up to this point hasn't told anybody he's the messiah now some people have recognized him as that like nathaniel but he hasn't said i'm the messiah this is the first person in the gospel of john that he says and clarifies to the one who speaks to you is he and i think it's fascinating that the first person in the whole gospel that jesus reveals himself to is not a jewish elite intelligentsia it is a samaritan woman with a checkered past. What a beautiful picture. I want to show you all these stories within a story that's happening here. So Jesus is the, the obviously God in the flesh here. He is not only physically man, he is 100% God. So that's the one thing we understand about him. So he's different than what we see with other men. He knows things that other men don't know. He sees things that other men don't see. And what we've seen up to this point is Jesus is always seeing the spiritual where everyone else can only think in the realm of the physical. And so we already saw it with Nicodemus. Nicodemus uh, has this conversation. Jesus says, unless you're born again, you'll never enter into the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus can only think physical. And he's like, how can I re-enter my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus is like, you're thinking physically, you got to think spiritually. And with this conversation with the woman, he says, if you knew who it was who asked you for a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you a drink of living water. And she can only think, you know, physical. And she's like, well, how are you going to get a drink? You don't even have anything to draw water with. The disciples in this passage, you already heard the passage read. When they come back, he's like, I have food you don't even know about. And they're like, who gave him a sandwich? Who, who gave him something to eat? They can only think physical, but Jesus is always seeing the spiritual around him. And that's what the Gospel of John keeps drawing us to, that there's so much more than what you see. There's so much more happening around you that you are unaware of if you're not looking with your spiritual eyes. And the only way you can see those things is with the Spirit of God. And that is a resource that is imparted to us because of the sacrifice of Christ, because of his resurrection, and because of the offer of salvation. So let's keep that in mind as we go through this. To recap where we have been, for those of you who may not have been here the last couple of weeks, Jesus has this intentional search for this woman at this well. Okay, He doesn't say that that's what he's doing, but you can see he's intentional. I want to go to Samaria. He gets to this one place, man, I'm too tired to move on. He sits down by the well, and immediately when this lady comes back, 
he inter, uh, interacts with her in this conversation. We also see that Jesus is in tune with his physical body in the sense that he realizes he's tired. Now, I alluded to this last time we were together, and I thought, isn't it interesting that the disciples have walked the same exact path with him? They've taken just as many steps as he has. They've had just as many meals or as few meals as he has. And all of a sudden, Jesus is tired, and the disciples aren't. They're, they're like, whatever we got to do to keep going, let's keep going, Jesus. Come on, we got to get through Samaria. We got to get to Galilee. We got to get to a safe place. And Jesus is like, I can't go any further. I'm tired, thirsty. And they're like, oh, my goodness. Let's go into town, and let's go get him something to eat and drink so we can feed him and get him fueled up again. Let's get out of here. Now, the reason I think that's important to see and note is because John gives us details. Whenever he gives us details, he wants us to pay attention to them. And I think what we see from this is the difference in motivations between Jesus and the disciples. Jesus is motivated by the Spirit of God, and he trusts the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God has led him into Samaria, and he's very aware that he's tired and shouldn't walk anymore, and so he sits down, and then he begins to say, what does the Father have for me here? Whereas the disciples, they're motivated by fear. They're in an unsafe place. All they can think of is, how do we get out of this unsafe place as fast as we can? They're motivated by fear, so whatever we got to do. So they run on adrenaline, and they're like, maybe we should be as tired, maybe we should be as thirsty, maybe we should be as hungry, but all we can think about is our safety right now, and we're in a place we shouldn't be in, so we need to get out of here. And the application that I want you to draw from that is, how often do you do that in your own life? How often do you find yourself in a difficult circumstance, in those difficult circumstances, you make decisions motivated by fear, not motivated by the Spirit of God? Not because you're in that situation and you're like, you know what, I am tired because of this relationship or I'm tired because of this situation or I'm tired because of whatever it is I've been dealing with. And you know what, I just need to rest in the midst of this situation, in the midst of this, which may seem unsafe. I'm gonna rest here because I'm tired and you know what, I'm gonna trust that the Spirit of God has something for me even in this. And so you say, God, show me what you have. But so often our whole lives are motivated by fear. We're motivated by getting out of those situations and getting back to a situation that we feel comfortable in. And that is, my friends, to neglect the Spirit opening your eyes to see things that you can't see. That is to miss God-sized opportunities that could happen in the midst of those circumstances that if we just rush right through them, we miss them. And we don't get that soul nourishment that Jesus talks about in this passage right here. The other thing I want to point out I think it's very uh, interesting, fascinating, the way this passage has progressed. Here's what I mean. Look back with your eyes back to chapter 3 for a moment. I don't have this on the screen, so if you have your copy of Scripture there, you can kind of gaze at it. What happens there at the end of chapter 3? John the Baptist is talking with his disciples, right? And they've been a little bit perturbed because Jesus' people have come in there and started baptizing and kind of taken over the ministry of John. And the passage kind of points to the fact that Jesus' ministry is beginning to overshadow John's, that more and more people are going to Jesus and less and less people are going to John, even though there are still some going there. And so the disciples of John go to John and go, look, this guy's getting in our territory. He's stealing, he's a copycat. He's stealing what we were going to do. I thought you said he was going to baptize with the Spirit. He's baptizing with water just like we are. And John says, sets them straight. He goes, listen, I've told you from the beginning I am not the Messiah that I am only the one who has come to prepare the way for the Messiah. 
I've told you very clearly that God showed me who the Messiah was, and it's that man right there. And you know what? As he has come, he has to become greater. I have to become less. And then he gives this analogy. Don't miss this. He says, Jesus is pretty much, he's the bridegroom. Okay, in other words, the bridegroom, we think he's the one that's going to marry someone. He's the one that has chosen a woman for his bride. He's the one that has sought this woman out. He says, I am just a friend of the bridegroom. And when I hear the bridegroom's voice, I rejoice. And now that I have heard him and seen him, my joy is complete. Okay? Now, here's the problem. A lot of times when we study with our American eyes, we see those little chapter divisions, and we just forget what just happened, and then we go on to something else. I don't want you to miss the fact that John has just related Jesus as a bridegroom who's in search for a bride. And the very next passage that he gives to us, Jesus is looking for a Samaritan woman. Now, I'm not saying, again, remember, it's spiritual, not physical. So he's not looking for a physical wife. But what if the reason John tells us this in this sequence is to point out that's exactly who Jesus came to save? That's exactly who he came to embrace in a relationship. The ones who are outcasts, the ones with checkered past, the ones no one else wants to deal with, the ones everyone else has forgotten about. That's who Jesus has gone to redeem. That's the one he has chosen for his bride. Now again, literally, not the person, but the picture that John is painting. That's who Jesus has come to redeem, those who are far off, those who are destitute, those who have been mistreated, those who have been taken advantage of. And this woman epitomizes all of them. And so Jesus intentionally goes to Samaria and intentionally has this conversation with her that is so full of deep theology. Last week, we ended with the disciples returning, and the woman leaves her water pot behind. Again, remember, John gives you details. There's a significance to that detail. So the fact that he tells us, not just that this woman turned and went back, but she left her water pot. She came there to get water. She left it behind and went back to the city, says something about their conversation and what she she gained from it. She gained that living water that he talked about. She gained that well that sprung up inside of her that leads to everlasting life. And because now she has that thirst quenched from that unquenchable source, she now leaves the water pot and she goes back to the city and makes these proclamations. She is more desperate to see God do something than she is embarrassed what people know about her. You know, this is a woman with a checkered past. This is a woman who the reason she's at the well in the middle of the day is because Nobody wants to go with her, and she's not welcome to go with the ladies when they go in the cool of the morning because of the reputation that she has and the things and the bad mistakes and decisions that she's made in the past. And this lady goes back and says, come see the man who told me everything I ever did. That's someone who's no longer embarrassed. That's someone who is desperate to see God do something in their life. And because of that, God uses her desperation, and he answers it with this incredible revival that really breaks out. And I want you to see again that theme. John is all about us seeing Jesus for ourselves. Look at what she says when she comes back. Come and see the man who told me everything that I've done. Could this be the Messiah? So let's go back again to verse 27 where Neil started with. And I just want to walk you through a couple of those verses before we get to the meat of it. And I'm just going to go ahead and warn you. I'm going to say, and we're going to walk through this and you're going to be like man he's just shooting and firing all over the place and at the end i'm going to pull it all together and you're going to like oh okay i see it all right so brace yourself put your seatbelt on and let's get through this verse 27 
Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So I want you to begin painting this picture in your mind. I want you to visualize what's actually happening. So the disciples are walking up. This lady, because he declared that he's the Messiah, and something happened, and she believes this. She leaves the water pot. She's running back. But as they've been approaching, they see that Jesus has been talking to this woman. Now, she's probably gone before they get up there, but they have these questions in their mind. Why is he talking to this woman, and, and what does he want from her? But they don't dare ask the questions. I think both of those things are important. Number one, the reason it's important is because in that day and time, men did not talk to women in public. I just want to give you a little snippet from rabbinical writings, rabbinical wisdom literature from that day and time, and it gives you an idea of the cultural concept, uh, context that we're talking about here. This is from uh, rabbinic teaching. A man shall not be alone with a woman in an inn, not even with his sister or his daughter, on account of what men may think. A man shall not talk with a woman in the street, not even with his own wife, and especially not with another woman, on account of what men may say. Do you see that? That was rabbinical teaching. That was the wisdom of that day. Now, here's what happened. That is the epitome of religion right there. Now, it's fine if God tells you that that's what you should do. If God convicts your heart that, you know what, I don't need to be talking to women in public. I don't even need to be talking to my wife in public. Some of y'all said, that's what God told me. I didn't know. That's, the, that's wrong. Don't use it that way. But here's the thing. If God convicts you to live a certain way, that's great. But don't apply that standard unless it's found in Scripture for everybody. Don't apply that standard to everyone else. Because when you start doing that, you create man-made religion. And that's what happens. So Jesus isn't breaking any, any uh, biblical law. He's only breaking cultural law or cultural concepts that have been created probably for a good intention in the very beginning, but now have created a religion in themselves. Did you hear what the guy actually wrote from the teaching? You do all of this so that you look good in the eyes of men, so that other men won't see you and think things. Jesus is like, I don't care what other men think. I care about this person's soul. I care about her tasting this living water. I care about her soul being healed. I care about her finding her purpose. I mean, I don't care what other men think. And so over and over again, we see Jesus living out these very uncharacteristic kind of scenarios. That's why also I believe that the disciples did not ask the questions out loud. I think they're walking up. They still have that old system with them. They're still asking these questions, but they're not asking them out loud now because they've grown a little bit. They're learning, and they're like, you know what? I have this question, but I don't ask it out loud because last time I asked Jesus, Jesus put me in my place, and he made me feel really dumb that I didn't think about it his way. So all of a sudden what's happening is they're beginning to learn that Jesus' ways of living and ministering are very different and foreign from what they grew up with. And so they're beginning to understand it, beginning to embrace it, and beginning to learn from it. So I think that's the purpose of what we have there in those opening verses. Now look at verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Now, this would be a good time to remind ourselves of what John tells us at the very end of his gospel. So I want to show it to you on the screen. The very last verse in the gospel of John says this. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. 
So John is telling us at the end of his gospel, I'm not telling you everything that Jesus did. I'm not even telling you the whole conversation. I'm telling you enough that you get the gist of what I'm talking about and the picture that I'm painting of Jesus. So in other words, when you read this and you're like, this woman comes back and goes, hey, come see this man that told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And you see all the people just running out there and you think, that's weird that everybody just responded on that one thing. Now, there was conversations that happened. She went back and she said, and they were kind of shocked because this woman has, has always been kind of a hermit or a recluse, probably because of her reputation. Now, all of a sudden, she's out in public. She's been one who's always had this shame and guilt now all of a sudden she has this joy out in public and doesn't care what people know about her something was striking about the fact that she came back to this town and broke the way she used to live and said something significant has happened and it was so significant that these other people are like that way that lady has a bad reputation and that lady's not somebody we'd necessarily want to associate but look at the joy that she has something's happened and she's saying this could be the messiah i want to go see what that's all about and so a few of them are like let's go and see and so as they're walking out somebody else is like hey where are they going oh you're not gonna believe this miss so-and-so we don't know what her name was the woman at the well man she came back and she said that she met the messiah out there you got to be kidding me that lady yeah she said he told her everything he ever did told her everything he ever did i gotta see this so they start walking out so what's happening behind behind the scenes, if you can understand this, is more and more people are talking, more and more people are becoming curious, and more and more people are beginning this journey out to the well. Now, what's happening back at the well is Jesus is having this conversation with his disciples. So the woman's already gone. She's having those conversations. Here comes Jesus' disciples. They've seen him talking to this woman. They have this conversation, and then our passage today lets you know how these two encounters are now coming together into one. Are you with me still so far? Okay, so let's look. Verse 29. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? The theme and gospel of John is come and see for yourself. Again, come and see. Come and see for yourself if this is not the Messiah. This radical change in this woman was eliciting enough curiosity in these townspeople that they were willing to go out there and see exactly what she was talking about. John even tells us that they were coming to him. That's the literal words that we have there. They were coming to him. Uh, right there at the end of verse 29. Now that, in its original language, literally means this. They kept coming to him. And what I'm, what, the reason I'm stressing that is... <clears throat> I want you to see that it was waves that they were coming in. So it was like a group of people, and behind that, more people were coming, and then behind that, more people were coming. So it wasn't like this mass mob that were coming out there. They kept coming. So the first group gets there, and then the other group's behind, and there's other people leaving the village right when the first group gets there. They just kept coming because the story begins to spread in the village about what this lady has experienced. And so they want to see who in the world gave so much life to this woman. This woman who was essentially lifeless before this encounter. This woman goes, in this one story, she goes from being isolated in her community to all of a sudden being the talk and connected in her community. She goes from being thirsty to leaving her water pot and being satisfied. If you think about it, exactly what Jesus said to her in her conversation was beginning to happen. A spring had erupted in her soul that was producing everlasting life, that was producing a, a water that quenched her thirst eternally. Look back at what Jesus said back in verse 14. When he's having this conversation with her and they were having this dialogue about this water, he says, the water that I will give him, someone who asks of me, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
And they talk about this idea of never thirsting again. But <clears throat> let me just clarify one thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. When, it, when, when we talk about never thirsting again, that doesn't mean that you will never get thirsty again. What it means, you've got to, again, think of the context. This woman, or anybody in that day and time, if you're out there and you're working in the field and you get thirsty, what do you have to do? You have to go get water. So you have to make this journey, and you have to go to this source. And when you go to this source, you drink the water, and you're satisfied at the moment. Then you can go back to work, and you can go back and do it. But you're going to get thirsty again. And so you get a little pot, maybe you get some water, and you have some. So you can work a little bit longer, in that, but then that pot runs dry. So you've got to take that pot back there and get more. So you're constantly doing that. What Jesus is saying is this. If you realize who I am, I will give you water that lives inside of you. So that wherever you go, that source of refreshment is always with you. You don't have to go anywhere. So in other words, if I had a water fountain that I could take with me everywhere, I could play basketball and I'm running up and down the court and I just hit that button and I, you know, take my little, hit my tray trays out there and as I'm running back, just hit the little button and get some, you know, water and it's always there. I don't have to take a time out. I don't have to stop. It's there with me. Do you get that picture? That's what he's talking about. So you don't have to stop. You don't have to go to a source. The source is with you always. That's what he's talking about. Because in this life, we're going to get thirsty again. Jesus got thirsty. But again, he's talking spiritual. Spiritually, we have these thirsts. And oftentimes, what we try to do is go to these broken cisterns that can't even hold water. And we, we drink from these things that can never satisfy, whether it be earthly relationships or material possessions or trying to gain some kind of status in the community so we can be respected, caring what other people think. We keep going to those wells, and we never satisfy. We have to keep going back. We have to keep going back. And Jesus says, if you knew who it was who was talking to you, I can save you from going to those wells where you're never satisfied, and I can give you a source that will keep satisfying. Are you with me still? Okay, keep following me. I promise it's going to make sense at the end. Okay, let's begin with our passage right here, okay? All that's to make sure we understand what he's talking about here. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Why do they want him to eat? Let's get the heck out of Dodge. I mean, this is a good time. Get something to eat, get nourished, and let's get on the road. Let's get to Galilee. Let's get out of enemy territory. Verse 32. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. Now, is he talking physical or spiritual? You know, right? Spiritual. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? What are they thinking? Physical. And John keeps pointing this out in, in encounter after encounter, that Jesus understands spiritual and emphasizes it. We keep emphasizing the physical and that's like all we can think about because that's our reality and it's hard for us to see the spiritual look at what how it continues jesus said to them my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work so the disciples say eat jesus jesus says don't need to don't need to eat already got some food food you don't know about now look at verse 34 my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, that's very interesting. So this food is something that you do. It's a perspective that you have and something that you live out. Let's consider this for a moment. We need food to live, and not only to live, we need food to thrive. Would you agree with me on that? 
Okay, so food is what you need in order to work. Food is what gives you strength. So food isn't just to keep you alive. Food is so that you can thrive, so that you have the energy, the strength to go out and do things. And so what you're doing can provide money, and your money can provide for your family, and you can go do fun things. So the, the strength that you have, the food that you eat, is more than just life. It is thriving in life. Are you with me? So... If food is what we take in order to work, Jesus is saying this. I, and this is going to blow your mind. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt, okay? I'm just going to tell you. It's going to hurt trying to understand this. I am strengthened to do what God has given me to do by doing what God has given me to do. That hurts, doesn't it? I'll try and think about it this way. My source of energy for doing God's will is doing God's will. That's what Jesus just said. Now you sit there and go, that's circular thinking if I've ever heard of it. How, how can you, he's creating a circle that can't meet, its, uh, so it doesn't have a beginning and an end. How, how does he able to do God's will? By doing God's will. Oh, so he does God's will, and that's what gives him the strength to do God's will. That's exactly right. That's what he's saying. That doesn't make sense. That's crazy. It is crazy. Listen to me. Unless you're God. Unless you're God. John, in the very beginning of his gospel, elicits back to uh, the beginning of, of, of the whole scripture. It goes back to the creation story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now let me ask you something. Did God get tired from creation? No. He rests at the end of it. Why? Because he's finished, not because he's tired. He rests and he reflects and he enjoys Never in the story do we find God, you know, after he puts, creates the sun, moon, and stars, just going, oh my goodness, that was draining. I mean, I had to get that sun just far enough away from that earth that I didn't burn up all that water, and then I didn't want to get too far that it turns into ice, and then those people won't live. And it's just like, that was so, doing those measurements and the algebraic formulas, oh my gosh, I am so, I'm wiped. I got to sit down. It doesn't do it. Why? Because God is endless endless in his wisdom, in his knowledge, in his power. He never exerts so much that he depletes himself because he's God. He's the source of everything that is. He's the source of all strength, all power, all wisdom, and he has it in infinity, right? So when he uses a little bit of it, all he has left is infinity, which is as much as you could possibly have. So the only way this makes sense is if you're God. So in this passage, what a beautiful display of the deity and the humanity of Christ. Humanity, tired, thirsty. Deity, it's the will of the Father that feeds me and it keeps me going and it keeps me doing what I'm called to do, which is the will of the Father. Because if you think about it, God is the only one who can actually talk like this and it makes sense. Because as humans, we don't understand this because we always have to get our power from outside of ourselves. We always have to eat something out there or drink something from out there to get power within us. But God is his own source of power. Notice that Jesus says that his food is to do the Father's will. So our next question as good Bible students is to ask this question. What is the Father's will for Jesus then? And Jesus makes it explicitly clear. God's will for Jesus, the whole focus of his life, what he was sent to accomplish is this, listen, to extend eternal life to humanity. Listen to what it says in John chapter 12, verse 49. The Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, 
and I know that his commandment is, what's it say? Eternal life. This is what I've been given to do. This is the goal of my life. This is the purpose. John 6, 39 reflects that same kind of sentiment. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on that last day. How does he raise it up? Salvation. So when Jesus says in verse 34 here in our passage, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, this is what he means. My food is to give eternal life. So Jesus' source of strength is to give eternal life to those who believe. And the source of energy that he has to do that is by giving eternal life. Now think about this. Jesus is the bread of life, but yet he gives bread of life to others. He is the living water, yet he extends living water to others. Now this sets the stage really for verse 35 and 36. So if you feel thoroughly confused, good, you should. Now 35 and 36 begin to make more sense. Jesus sowed eternal life and he reaps eternal life. And we see this in the conversation with the woman. Now she's going back and she's sowing within her village. And now all of a sudden there's a harvest that begins to come from that sowing. Look at what Jesus says in verse 35. Do you not say, thinking from a physical point of view, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. That's true. There's literally six months before harvest when you plant to when you reap in Israel that is their harvest period it's six months so they're two months into the harvest period he's saying from now until when everybody actually harvests it's four more months isn't it and so they look and where Jacob's well is there's actually fields all I think it's to the east of Jacob's well and there's fields all of it so at this point four months away from the harvest everything is green it's just coming out of the ground and so it's nothing but green that you see Get that visual in your mind. Jesus is pointing. He said, you say that physically it's true. Look out there, it's green. There's four more months until the harvest. That's physically true. But then he says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white with harvest. Now here's what's amazing. I never saw this before ever reading this passage. But Samaritan men were known for wearing white linen garments. So Jesus says, physically, you're looking at a physical reaping. But lift your eyes. And now what is he seeing? These wave of people who have now become to come out of that city. And it's like a sea of white robes that's coming towards them. And he's saying, what's true physically is not necessarily true spiritually. When you sow a seed physically, you have to wait six months not true spiritually sometimes you sow and you reap right away look the fields are white with harvest what fields the physical fields the spiritual fields these people that are coming from this city to hear what this man did to this woman who had been marginalized her whole life and how somehow she was radically changed they want to hear this story now notice how this process of sowing and reaping Jesus combines them into one process. Now, the reason he does this is because he's showing again that he's the Messiah that was promised from the Old Testament. Let's go to the prophet Amos for a second, and let's see how Amos was foreshadowing, when you see this, you know the Messiah has come. Look at what he says. Amos chapter 9, verse 13. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman, the guy plowing the ground and planting the seed, the sower, shall overtake the reaper. So in other words, the reaper is the guy who's pulling the fruit, right? The guy who's going to plant the seeds is going to catch up with the guy who's harvesting. And they're going to be doing the same exact things at the same exact time. Look how he continues. And the treader of the grapes, who is that guy? After the grapes are full of their juice, they take them, they pull them, they put them, they all march around on them, they get ready to make some good wine, right? They're doing that, putting that in a little press. So the ones who are treading the grapes for him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine. Have y'all ever seen a mountain that drips sweet wine? No, you know why? Because all the mountains have are the vineyards. You have to go pick it, bring it down, step on it, let it ferment, and then you have sweet wine. Jesus is saying literally sweet wine is going to be found on the mountain. Again, everything's happening at the same exact time. Seeds are being sown and being reaped at the same time. Jesus is demonstrating, again, he's the fulfillment of these Old Testament passages. Look how it continues in verse 36. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. There's the key. Eternal life, what's Jesus' purpose? Eternal life, what fuels him? Eternal life, extending that to us so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here, the saying holds true. Here, in the physical, here, one sows and another reaps. But I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. So as far as the gospel of John is concerned, this has been the process from from the onset. When he introduced John the Baptist to us, the one who is the witness, declaring, make straight the way of the Lord, repent, the kingdom of God has come. So John the Baptist was sowing, and Jesus came in and began reaping from John the Baptist's ministry. So much so that his disciples began baptizing, and more and more people came. They are reaping where they didn't sow. And then he continues on in that whole story John has been showing us. Jesus goes to this woman, and this woman, Jesus sows and reaps in the same moment. He sows the seed, and she responds to that gospel. Sower, reaper, same person. Now, all of a sudden, this woman has gone back to the city, and she is sowing these seeds. And all of these people are coming out, and what Jesus is preparing his disciples' hearts for is to see a bigger picture than what they actually see with their physical eyes. Other people have already gone before you, and you're going to reap from their labors. Both the sower and and the reaper. Jesus is is both the sower and reaper at the same time. What he's doing is he's orchestrating this entire event by working as sower and reaper, speaking the word, reaping its fruit. And this is the conclusion that he gives us in verses 37 and 38. He draws the disciples into his work. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor, Others have labored, and you entered into their labor. In other words, you're going to share in the reaping, but it's other people who have labored before you. Who are the people that have labored before them? It's Jesus, and it's the Samaritan woman. Jesus has been sowing with his word, and he's been reaping and gathering fruit of eternal life. And it's been feeding his soul. And the woman has been sowing her word into the townspeople. That's why the story returns back to this. What you're going to see next week when we get to verses 39 to 42. It goes back to the testimony of the woman and the testimony of Jesus. Why? They were the laborers putting out the seed. 
villagers believe because of the testimony of the woman, at least some of them. But then they go out and hear Jesus for themselves, and you're going to hear them say, we heard you, but now we believe for ourselves because we've heard for ourselves and we've seen for ourselves. And Jesus says the disciples are about to take part in this harvest. Don't miss the implication here. And this is where we want to pull it all together. This means the disciples are about to intermingle with those Samaritans who have come out to see this man. And in this moment, the disciples are ultimately going to learn to defeat their fears, to defeat their prejudices. And they're going to begin to see how big the kingdom of God really is. Because in their mind, the only people fitting in the kingdom of God was good Jewish men and women. And now all of a sudden, Jesus says, you're looking with your physical eyes. But if you will look with your spiritual eyes, you'll see the harvest. And the harvest was started by a woman who is a Samaritan who had made very poor choices in her life. The kingdom of God started with her and a well of living water came up from her and it began to nourish all the people around her. And you're going to experience revival in the kingdom in this place amongst these people that you've hated your whole life and you've been told you have nothing in common with them and yet you're gonna see the great grace and love of God extended to them. And the first revival recorded in the Gospel of John happens in enemy territory. (laughs) That's how big the love of God is. That's how big his grace is. And so what we see here is that Jesus is the one sent from God with the purpose of bringing salvation to humanity. Salvation is not as predictable as planting and harvesting. You can't say, well, I told that guy the gospel, and so give him about three months and we should see some fruit. No, it doesn't happen that way because it's spiritual, not physical. And you don't reap necessarily where you've sown. Sometimes you reap where you haven't sown, and sometimes you sow where you won't reap, and sometimes you sow and reap all at the same time. The kingdom of God is like that. Why is that so powerful for us to understand? Because Whenever we reap where we haven't sown, our immediate mind should be, praise God for that person who had the commitment to sow the seed in this life that I was able to be the one who harvested. And you know what? If you're the one who's planting that seed, but you're not seeing the fruit, what you need to do is praise God for that person down the road who will be the one who will harvest, maybe next week, maybe next year, maybe 10 years from now. Praise God for that person who will be working those fields and when that fruit comes ripe, they will be there to receive it. And also pray to God that you would be able to be both the sower and the harvester to see the kingdom of God in one moment, to share the gospel and to see someone respond. This is what should create passion within us. To know at any moment we could share this life-changing story and boom, a well of living water could come up in that person. And not only in that person, it could begin to change everyone around them. You never know when it's going to happen. And that should fuel our energy and our passion for the gospel. Remember this. What you do for the kingdom of God is important. 
it's important. Whether you're sowing or whether you're reaping, remember God has invited you to be a part of the process, but also remember that we're all invited to be a part of the process and we should be thankful for each other. I want to show you one other thing before we end and partake of the Lord's Supper, before we leave. As I began studying this, a thought came into my mind and I thought, oh no, I wonder if this is in the Gospel of John because I couldn't remember for sure. And then my next question when I found it in the Gospel of John was, is this the only Gospel that we find this in? And sure enough, it is. Let me take you to this verse towards the end of the Gospel of John. This is when Jesus is on the cross. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, what does it say? I thirst. Because on the cross, he took all of those wells that we've been going to for so long, that are so empty, and he took them on himself. And he experienced on the cross the thirst of humanity. Here's what's amazing. John is the only one who records this. John is the only one who mentions that Jesus said this on the cross. John is also the one who said that this woman came thirsty, thirsty, thirsty. And I want to give you, I want to give you a well inside of you that will leave you to never thirst again. But here's what we don't often think of. For Jesus to make good on that promise, he had to go to the cross. He had to bear our sins, our worthlessness, our rebellion. And he had to defeat death, hell, and the grave so that the Spirit of God could be imparted to us so that we could have a well of living water where we would never thirst again. Jesus experienced the thirst so that we wouldn't have to. And that's what this table represents. When we come to this table, we realize that it is the death of Jesus, his sacrifice. The wine represents the blood of Christ. The broken bread represents the body of Christ. When Jesus was spending this night with his disciples, sharing this Passover meal the night before he was to be crucified, he shared this and said, I want you to remember me every time you share this. And isn't it interesting that we take physical food, nourishment, but what we remember is what it represents, is a spiritual nourishment, the impartation of the Spirit of God, which this made possible. And so as we eat it and we drink it, we say, praise God. Thank you for taking my thirst. Thank you for taking my sin and my emptiness and my separation and isolation and my depression. And thank you for giving me something where I'll never thirst again. So as we celebrate what we read and teach in this passage, I want you, number one, to be able to respond in this way. But first and foremost, I want you to respond in your heart however God has led you to. There may be some of you here today that don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you just showed up at this church and you, you know, you're like, uh, I was just driving around and I saw people pulling in. And I was like, what's going on here? I don't know. Probably not anybody here. Maybe you came with a neighbor. Um, maybe you've been coming here for weeks and weeks, but you know that you've never truly become a follower. Maybe today is the day you begin your journey. Maybe there's many of you that have been disillusioned. You are a follower of Christ, but man, you've just been going back to those wells over and over again. And you know they're not going to satisfy you, but something just keeps pulling you back. And maybe what Jesus is saying to you is quit looking with the physical eyes and begin looking with the spiritual. See what I want to show you. 
I want you to see the world differently. I don't know how God would have you to respond, but I know this. After the teaching of God's word, the Spirit calls us to agree and to respond and to say, yes, Lord. So however that is for you, I pray that today you would be obedient to the calling of the Spirit in your life. And if you are a follower of Christ and there's nothing you're holding back, you are welcome to partake in the Lord's Supper. Remember, it's only for those who have given their lives in totality, holding nothing back to Christ. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you've been perfect this morning. But what it means is there's nothing you're holding back. There's no unconfessed sin in your life. No area of your life you're going, well, I'm gonna hold on to this, God. You can have all this, but this is mine, and I'm gonna keep control of this. Then, then you haven't surrendered everything yet. This is for people who have surrendered everything. Why? Because it represents a God who surrendered everything for you. And so we wanna eat of it and drink of it worthily because of what it symbolizes. So as the Holy Spirit releases you in these moments, as you have reflected on the teaching, reflected on your own heart, maybe there needs to be a time of confession in your mind. Maybe you know right where you stand with the Lord and you can come up immediately. That's, that's great and awesome and encouraged. But as the Spirit releases you, if you wanna come forward, we will be here to serve. The small cups are grape juice. I have the common cup, which is real wine. You can drink from it, and I wipe it and turn it, so it's, it's sanitary. And we also, you can take the bread and you can dip it in the, in the common cup. The reason we do that is because that's the way Jesus did it with his disciples. When he had that Passover meal, he said, I want all of you to drink from my cup because it symbolized the fact that his blood was the only one good enough. Their blood wasn't good enough, his was. So they all drink from that one cup. And so that's why we offer the common cup because of the symbolism of that. So if you would like to partake of that and your conscience allows, then we welcome you to do that as well. Let's pray. Father God, may you be honored and glorified as we remember you, as we remember the sacrifice that you made for us, as we remember those of us who are followers that day that you showed up at our well when we were sitting there marginalized and destitute and you offered us living water. What a day of rejoicing that became for us. And so God, may we remember that and we, may we remember what it cost for us to know you and to accept you and to live for your kingdom and to taste of that eternal weight of glory that is ours in Christ Jesus. Lord, we still have huge problems with only seeing the physical and living for those physical things around us. Lord, help us to lift our eyes and see the harvest, the places of impact that we can have where we can sow your word through relationships, through kind words, through kindness. God, however you want to honor and glorify yourself, may you do that in this moment. And we ask this in the powerful name of Jesus, our sovereign Lord, amen. As the Holy Spirit releases you to come forward, uh, come forward and receive.